0: Thank you for listening to sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Seven Letters. Seven Letters is a sermon series looking at the letters of Jesus Christ to seven ancient churches. These letters fill the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation written by John, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. As we explore these seven letters, we will seek to discover what we as the church today can learn from Christ's words to the seven churches of Revelation. today comes from revelations 3 14 through 22 and to the angel of the church in laodicea write the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of god's creation i know your works you are neither cold nor hot would that you were neither cold nor hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold i will spit you out of my mouth For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he will be with me. The ones who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquer and sat down with my fathers on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches.
1: John has written seven letters to seven churches Uh, in Asia Minor. And this is uh, in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 2. And uh, considering this is the last sermon in this series, I'd like to maybe point you back to the first one if you haven't already heard it. Uh, Derek did a great job sort of laying out uh, the foundation, the groundwork for this whole thing. And and, uh, if you haven't been with us, maybe you hear Revelation and you start thinking about all of these crazy things and codes and end times and beasts and imagery and symbolism and it can maybe be a little bit overwhelming Um, and there are a couple of approaches that we could take that are a little bit off base and one is to pay way too much attention to all of these codes and these hidden meanings and trying to draw all these parallels between this beast and that and what is happening in our current time and place and People have even gone so far as to say, you know, the the world is going to end on this date and this time, and, you know, those dates and times have come, and the world hasn't ended, and then they say, ah, never mind, this time it's going to end, and that's really just unwise of us, because that's not the main thrust of the book of Revelation. Uh, What is actually going on is John, the apostle that wrote other books in the New Testament, Receives this spiritual vision and this vision is intended to provide uh, a grounding, so to speak for a group of people and he writes these to real people in real places, facing real struggles at a particular moment in history and Revelation is written to these folks to actually give a picture of of the grand narrative uh, to sort of zoom out and say, look, I know You're suffering, you're struggling, it feels like God is not with you, Uh, but the reality is is that all things will come to a head one day, and in Jesus, you all are conquerors. So this was written as an encouragement to those folks, and we also see uh, some churches that are struggling and maybe even not following Jesus as they ought, and we see Jesus bringing correction and rebuke and restoration and guidance. So, let's remember, too, that we are part of the Church of Jesus Christ on earth here. And though there are seven particular churches in Asia Minor that John writes to, uh, these are quite applicable to us. And we are not exempt from the same struggles that they faced, uh, though they were in a different time and place there is intentionality in including these seven letters. And we, in the West here, particularly in America, share a lot of similarities with the church at Laodicea. That's what we're looking at this morning. And so as we approach it, uh, it would behoove us to listen to what Jesus has to say to us. And before I dive too deeply into that, Uh, Let me pray. Father, um, we need you. We need you to open our minds, our ears, our hearts to your truth. We need you more than we think we need you. We are typically self-reliant, fairly complacent. Uh, We don't view things as we ought. We don't rely on you as we ought. And we thank you, Lord, that even as we miss that mark, we still have intimate fellowship with you because of what you have done for us, because of your grace and your mercy towards us. And so, God, we ask that according to your grace, according to your mercy, you would meet us here this morning and that you would illuminate truth to our hearts Uh, where we are proud, pray that you would humble us, where we need encouragement. We pray that you would lift us. And I pray, Lord, also for myself. Uh, You know that I am incapable and foolish, and I need you to help uh, a sinner like me say anything good or worth hearing from your word this morning. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've seen in the first... uh, six letters that we've gone through, it's pouring outside, Um, that uh, Jesus has sort of a pattern when he addresses churches. He kind of says, this you've been doing well, but this I have against you. And a lot of times it's twofold, right? He kind of brings a rebuke and then he follows it up with a condemnation and, and his address to the churches is twofold. But we've also seen that there were a couple churches in which Jesus is doing nothing but commending them. He's saying, you guys are doing great, you know, Stay faithful to the end, you'll be conquerors. You will, you will dine with me. Keep doing what you're doing. And they receive nothing but encouragement and condemnation. I'm sorry, commendation, not condemnation. And then this morning, the church at Laodicea actually, unfortunately, receives nothing but condemnation. They receive rebuke only. He doesn't say anything positive to them. This is the only church of these seven uh, that he he takes that approach with, so we should be somber in our approach uh, and be ready to receive the truth that Jesus has to give us here this morning. So I'm going to open with a little bit of an aside, and then we'll we'll dive in. Reading verse 14, it says, "And to the angel of the church in Laodicea." Write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation." If you're reading that in passing, you might see this phrase, the beginning of God's creation, and think that Jesus is a created being. And I just want to clarify this because it's important. Jesus is not created. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Um, and the book of Revelation calls him that, and there are other places in Scripture, which I'll go to in a moment, uh, that affirm his divinity. The reason I say this is because it, it's important. There are people that for thousands of years have actually used this text to say that Jesus was created, and he is a God, uh, and he is not the one true God, and there will be people that knock on your door and try to tell you that. And uh, I just want to let you know that we should lovingly and graciously correct that. And I'm just going to give you one quick scripture on that, and then uh, we'll move on to the next part. But Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, makes it pretty clear. This is referring to Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, And then it goes on to talk about uh, the fact that he is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. This letter opens, like all the other letters, with some description about Jesus. And the first six actually refer to something that John saw in his vision in chapter 1. This one actually doesn't do that. I'm not totally sure why. Uh, I don't have a good answer for you there, but I do have an idea as to why he uses specifically these phrases, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. If you look at Isaiah chapter 65, this gives us some insight into, into what this means, into why specifically John, before he sort of confronts the Laodiceans, is saying the Amen and the faithful and true witness. Isaiah 65:16 says this, "...so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes." That word truth there, literally translated, is actually amen. The amen. The truth. You see other places in the gospels where Jesus is talking to people and you're probably familiar with the phrase. He says things like, uh, verily, verily, I say unto you. Or your translation might say, truly, truly, I say unto you. If you actually translate that literally, it is amen, amen, I say to you. What Jesus is doing is he's trying to say, listen, this is utterly true. This is very important and it is utterly true. So truly, truly, I say to you. Amen, amen, I say unto you. And so John, in writing to the Laodiceans, says, keep in mind who's talking to you in this letter. You're about to hear some hard truths, and what is our typical response to criticism or rebuke or hard truth? It's not to shush and listen, right? When my wife brings something to me graciously, I don't say, you know what, you're right. Thanks so much for pointing that out. I go through about seven paragraphs in my head of why she's wrong. Her perspective is off, right? She's missing it. She's not seeing things the way that I am. So John comes to the loudest scenes and says, listen. Listen to the one who is speaking to you. He is the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the only one who knows all things, the one who has never uttered a lie, even a white one, he is truth personified. He himself says, I am the truth. So, as he speaks, be prepared uh, to consider the fact that what he says might contradict what you think about reality, right? So, as John said that to the Laodiceans, we should also be prepared to hear from him and to be contradicted based on how we feel or what we think because he is the truth and we are not may we lay our rebuttals down and listen to the only one who speaks rightly we're going to cover three things hopefully the first is wealth both spiritual and material the second is attaining true wealth and the third is the good news of hard truth. So first, wealth. A little bit of background at Laodicea. It is uh, an incredibly wealthy city. They are well off. So much so that actually in 60 AD this massive earthquake uh, hit the area and completely destroyed the city. And as the city was in ruins Rome reached out to Laodicea and said, Hey, everything's destroyed. Do you guys need some help? We've got some money. We've got some resources. We can help you. And they said, No. We're fine. Massive earthquake just destroyed the whole city. We're good. In fact, Tacitus of Rome writes, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. Can you imagine, right? We, we have natural disasters, right? You're familiar with the devastation that happens with that, with the amount of rebuilding that takes place, with the amount of resources that is necessary to rebuild something like that. And they're like, no, we're good. What's interesting is that not only demonstrates the amount of wealth that was in Laodicea, It also gives us some insight into their posture. We're fine. We're good. We've got it. Thank you very much. We don't need your help. We are self-sufficient. We've got it on our own. We don't need to rely on you or anybody else. Thank you very much. And this is precisely what Jesus has against them. He says... I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now when you hear this, maybe you've heard it preached this way, that you know there's, there's coldness and there's hotness and you need to be hot in your pursuit of the Lord. And, and, and the cold or hot is is actually just like a gauge for spiritual fervency, and it's like the hotter the better, right? You know, we have these Christianese sayings like, on fire for the Lord, you know, and look, it's fun if you want to use that, but, but that's not what's happening here. Jesus is actually referring to two different water systems surrounding Laodicea. They actually did not have their own water supply, so they had to pipe it in from elsewhere. So there's a neighboring city called Colossae, And there was an aqueduct system from Colossae into Laodicea that provided cold water for them. And there was also another neighboring town called Hierapolis, and they had hot springs. They were about 95 degrees, and and those would be piped into the city as well. And so when Jesus is talking about the coldness and the hotness, he's talking about the usefulness of the cold water and the usefulness of the hot water. And a lot of times what would happen... As the water flowed from Hierapolis, it would become lukewarm over time. And it was also said that this water collected minerals. That if you drank the water, it would make you vomit. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. His rebuke against them is, look, you are the church of Jesus Christ on earth, and you have lost your usefulness. You've become lukewarm. Nobody pursues lukewarm water. My wife and I are a little weird. We don't like to drink ice water. But uh, it's a different time and place, right? You use cold water to cool things like food and and water and wine. And uh, we have refrigerators, right? They did not have that. So Jesus' point is that they are lukewarm. They are not fulfilling their purpose as the church of Jesus Christ on earth. So he has some very difficult things to say to them. And this lukewarmness is directly tied to what Jesus says in verse 17. We have to kind of resist the temptation to say, oh, while I'm lukewarm, kind of tepid, I need to get to work. I need to join some more programs at the church. I need to do more religious duties and religious efforts, and and then I'll be hot, right? Jesus is not necessarily condemning laziness here. What he is condemning is the heart's posture to be self-reliant. And it is entirely possible to be hyper-religious and to be self-reliant. In fact, that's one of the main ways that we are self-reliant sometimes. We do, 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 and then we don't need God, right? If I can do it, if I can fulfill it in my strength, I don't need to lean on God to do that, right? I'm a moral person. I'm good. Get off my back. Thank you very much, God. I've got it. Jesus says this is what they say. You say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church has forgotten that they have nothing to bring to God. Their sin is that they are under the delusion that they are spiritually wealthy. And this is influenced in part by their material wealth. And I'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's talk about what we mean by spiritual poverty. Because Jesus is condemning their spiritual richness. Matthew 5 Verse 3, Jesus is, uh, this comes from the Sermon on the Mount, very famous. You're probably familiar with it. But remember in Exodus, Moses goes up to Sinai, he gets the Ten Commandments, he comes down off the mountain, and he, he gives the commandments to the people. And, and Jesus, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, goes up to a mountain, and he gives sort of a, a new law, you could say, the law of love. And And it's interesting here because Jesus is going up on the mountain and so it's almost a reversal of the Sinai covenant or, or better stated, maybe an ultimate fulfillment of that. And the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples when he goes on this mountain is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the question is what does it mean to be poor in spirit? In short, it means to recognize that we're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I don't think a day, ten minutes in a day goes by in my daily life in which sin, whether I notice it or not, is, is not just spilling out of my heart everywhere. And if you take the time to think about it and to consider it, it is true of you as well. Let's, let's think about it for a moment. I'm either tempted to look at something I shouldn't look at or to say something negative about a colleague that I think deserves it, or a friend, or a family member, or maybe I want somebody else's lifestyle, or maybe I'm jealous of their time or their possessions, or I'm critical and unsupportive of my wife you can ask her, she'll tell you or I'm impatient with my son's crying and I view him as an inconvenience instead of a miraculous gift from God or I become entitled in the workplace and I think that I deserve better or I give far too much weight to the opinions of other people or I think about myself way too much Or I look down on other people for not feeling false standards of righteousness that I've created for myself. And on and on and on and on, right? Consider in your life if 10, 20, 30 minutes goes by without at least these thoughts entering your mind and heart. The problem with the Laodiceans is that they weren't willing to look at that. There is a way to be complacent to these things. And I'll be honest with you, even as I I do deep digging and I'm intentional about this, when I get out of the bed in the morning, my mantra is not, I'm wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, it's not. I wish it were, Lord help us, help that be the case. But it's not, I'm complacent, I'm apathetic. I don't consider the weight of these things. It's the default of the human heart, and it's what the church in Laodicea is guilty of. Now we we share some parallels with the Laodiceans. First, we are wealthy, okay? You live, here, and I don't care where you are on the pay scale, you're wealthy. 80% of the world lives on less than $10 per day. So if you make minimum wage here, you make more than what people live off an entire day and an hour and a half. We're wealthy. When you look at history of the world and even the world today and compare yourself to other people we are wealthy people ten dollars a day is like two frappuccinos right it's crazy and then if you make more than $50,000 a year you're in the richest 1% of the entire planet we are wealthy the Laodiceans were wealthy let's be careful Let's not think that these rebukes are reserved for them. And I highly doubt that, that these folks actually walked around chanting, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. No, it was, it was a, a, a subtle, covert, heart attitude. It was a disposition. It was a posture. And we must be careful of adopting the same thing unknowingly. Now, you're probably asking the question fairly. Wait, is Jesus uh, Jason condemn? I'm not Jesus. Jason is Jason condemning wealth? No, not at all. I'm not condemning wealth. There's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. Um, Derek went over this a few weeks ago. It's helpful to recap it, though. There are four categories of wealth in the Bible, or people in the Bible, rather the wealthy wicked, the wealthy righteous, the impoverished wicked, and the impoverished righteous. Okay? So wealth, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. And I'm not saying, if you're wealthy, automatically you will be rich in spirit and deluded about your spiritual poverty. That's not what I'm saying at all. But, the Bible does give us certain categories and warnings related to wealth in Scripture. Because of the way that the human heart operates, when it receives something, it has a propensity and a tendency to latch onto that thing and to view it as God. So just a couple quick references in Scripture, because if we completely ignore uh, wealth's influence on our spiritual lives, we're, we're not looking at the Bible and taking it seriously. So... You've probably heard the parable of the rich young ruler. Uh, It comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, says this, good teacher, well, okay, so somebody approaches Jesus, context, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Material wealth can influence shade color your spiritual life and that is what has happened at Laodicea why why is this the case well it it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it um, when you have a lot of things you kind of get some amount of confidence in those things and you you equate possessions with achievement particularly in our our time and place and our culture uh, wealth gives you status something that Jesus cares nothing about, but the world highly esteems. It garners the respect from other people. It gives the illusion, and this is probably the biggest here, it gives the illusion that one relies on no one and nothing to meet needs. Because if I have money, I can get whatever I want, whenever I want it. Money makes the world go round. If I have it, I don't need to be reliant. I'm not a needy person when I have tons of money. When is the last time we prayed, give us this day our daily bread? It's been a little while for me, I'll be honest. We don't have need, right? The need, hunger pangs when you don't have food reminds you of your weakness. It is a very clear and unignorable signal that says, man, I am limited, and I am finite, and I am dependent on another. But with wealth, I have what I want when I want. I have a desire, and I use money to fulfill that desire. Wealth brings comfort, it brings ease, and by and large, comfort and ease do not drive us to our knees to show us our need for God. It makes us self-confident and content with the superficial But the reality is that all people, at all times, are utterly dependent on God for all things. Your organ systems right now are functioning because of God's grace towards you. You breathe because God gives you air. You eat because God feeds you. He uses plants and farmers and delivery services and everything else to do that, but he does that. And there is an objection to this that I've heard. And that is, you know, I work hard. I earn my money. And so, you know, I really I feed myself. Fair? Uh, until you think about it a little more. If you have wealth, which we all do, where did it come from and why do you have that and why does someone else not have it? Some of the party line statements are because I work hard and they don't. Well, would you have the same job, the same opportunities, and be in the same position if you were born in some remote village in Africa? Probably not. I don't think you'd become a CEO of Wells Fargo if, you know, that was the case, right? There are opportunities and there are places that God has placed you in, and they're all gifts, and they're all a means of enabling you to land where you are. All things are God's grace. We as human beings are utterly dependent on Him for all things." There's a funny Winston Churchill anecdote. A young man, I guess, approached him, just trying to impress him, and he said, "'Mr. Churchill, I want you to know that I'm a self-made man.'" (laughs) And Churchill responded, Young man, you've just relieved God of a very solemn duty. We are not self-made people. I'm not saying that there's no relationship between work and and reward and and that things just fall into our laps. But ultimately, all good things come from God, and we are reliant, reliant upon Him for all things. So you might also ask the question, Point number two here, attaining true wealth. What, what are we supposed to do then? Okay, you, you've made me feel guilty enough, thanks. Um, do I just live under the weight of shame and guilt? Is this what pleases Jesus, for me to walk around in self-deprecation, uh, uttering my spiritual poverty left and right? No, absolutely not. That is not where Jesus leaves this. Verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is giving us an irrefusable offer. He's counseling us. He's coming to us. He's saying, look, the things that you are trusting in that you are building your life on, they will fade away, they will be gone, and I, as king of the universe, have true riches, come, buy these true riches, they are yours if you want them, that word buy is a little interesting there, we think, well, what, I thought we were spiritually bankrupt, how do we do that, Isaiah 55 gives us some insight there, Starting in verses 1 through 2, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. How do we buy this? The answer is it's free. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. Everything that is Christ's can be ours if we merely approach Him with nothing in our hands. And if you're anything like me, You love to approach God with a moral offering. I live a good life. I do this and that and this and that. And maybe if I blow it, I tend to pray a little bit less or be more fearful in approaching him, feel the weight of condemnation a little more. And when I feel like I've gone without sinning for a little while, I'm a little bolder in my prayers. What does that reveal about my heart? it reveals that I think my intimacy with God and my relationship with God is based on my moral performance. And Jesus will have none of it. The only way that you can come is without anything in your hand, just like the hymn said. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And look, I don't sit down intentionally and say, I'm going to, be a good person and earn God's favor, but it subtly operates in our hearts and lives. God has not, does not, and will not ever relate to you on the basis of your good deeds. One of the main reasons for this is because we don't have good deeds. We might outwardly, but maybe we do certain things to make ourselves feel better, to quiet our consciences. Or simply as a way to look at others and say that we've done more than them. Or maybe we do it so that we can ever so slightly utter to ourselves, I'm not this type of person. Or maybe you're afraid that you'll get judged by the morality police. You know, if I don't do this, people are going to look at me and think I'm a certain kind of person or I'm a certain way. And The point is, is that even good deeds that we do outwardly, are polluted with all kinds of askew motivations. We do it for ourselves, ultimately. And relating to God according to this religious, I perform, then God blesses me, is utterly burdensome. I mean, you will just up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. You will have no anchor. You have no assurance that you belong to him if it is based on your doing. You will also do all of your obeying out of a heart that doesn't actually want God Himself but His blessings. So we approach God with needs, not deeds. We come to Him recognizing our spiritual poverty and understanding that we have no true gold. We are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And God will, by his grace, when you approach this way, give you an imperishable inheritance in himself. He will honor you as an esteemed guest at his banquet. And he will give you vision to see his glory. Lastly, the good news of hard truth It probably seems like Jesus is maybe being a little mean here. They are strong words. It is a rebuke. He doesn't say anything good to them. But when you dig in a little bit, you see some really good news, and that is that Jesus is confronting because he loves them. Right? You might have thought, well, gosh, the Laodiceans blew it so much. He doesn't have a single good thing to say to them. Did he cut his people off? What is, what's to happen to the Laodiceans? He's harsh with them. Our answer is in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Do you feel the weight of God's hand disciplining you? Rejoice. Rejoice. Because it means he loves you. The confrontation is for the sake of restoration, right? Jesus comes to his people and he gives them a hard word because he cares about them and he loves them and they are his. And he wants to give gracious words of warning to enable them to repent. And that's what happens for you and me as well. When we find hard truths in the Bible that are hard to swallow... Be reminded that Jesus disciplines his own. He disciplines those whom he loves. Lastly, it might seem strange that they've blown it so badly. And Jesus is like, but all this stuff is yours for free. The reality is, is that it costs us nothing, right? This gold refined by fire, this eye salve that enables us to to see clearly, these white robes of righteousness that Jesus wants to clothe us in, those things cost us nothing. But they cost God everything. It cost him his life. Jesus came to take the punishment that you and I deserve. He was no wretch, he was perfect. He was the epitome of what it meant to be a human being made in the image of God. He had perfect fellowship with the Father. Jesus Christ was not pitiable. He was a king. He held together all things in himself, as we saw in Colossians 1. Jesus Christ was not poor. He was rich. All the true riches were found in himself and his fellowship that he had with the Godhead. In addition, he possessed This measly little universe and everything in it. Jesus Christ was not blind. He knew all things. He had perfect understanding of all reality. He's the only human being who ever saw God and self accurately. Jesus Christ, according to his own behavior, had no reason to be ashamed. He was holy, holy, holy like God the Father and God the Spirit. There was no blemish in him. Yet, Jesus Christ was treated like a wretch by dying on a cross so that you and I wouldn't have to bear the punishment of our wretchedness. He became pitiable by giving himself over to unjust courts to be falsely accused so that we might receive a righteous verdict that we don't deserve. Jesus Christ became poor so that we might be rich in him. He was homeless. The Son of God was homeless. Jesus Christ did not become literally blind, but he became a human being and chose not to use his knowledge of all things as a weapon against his wicked creation. And lastly, Jesus Christ put himself to open shame by allowing sinners to literally strip him naked on the cross that he might hang there and bear the penalty for our sin so that he could close us us with his white and spotless robes. Jesus Christ died for you and he died for me. And that is why we come to this table of communion each week. So that we can remind ourselves that apart from grace, we are utterly spiritually bankrupt. We are impoverished and we need to remind ourselves that the God of all riches made himself poor that we might be rich in him. you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us what we don't deserve. Life. Life abundantly. Imperishable riches. Eyes to see our own sin and not be condemned by it. A white robe, which is Symbolism for a position of honor. The whiteness is cleansing, spotlessness. God, you gave us your righteousness, and we gave you our sin, and you were punished for it. That is intense, and it is massive, and it's not big enough to our hearts, and we pray that it would be bigger, and we pray that as a church, as a people, we would be spiritually poor that we may be driven to our knees and run to our Savior, Jesus. And as we do that, we would be shaped and molded and renewed and cleansed and that we would look more like you and that we one day would dine at the table with you because of your grace, because of your saving love towards us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.